everything old is new again. America's entertainment pop culture talk show. It may well possess a rudimentary intelligence. You try to think, but nothing happens. Felt the great disturbance in the force. Hello, I'm Mr. Ray. Come on, Mark, like a dog for me. Where's the goodies? Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. I bet you wouldn't have done anything like this if Mom and Dad were here. You filthy criminal. Excuse me while I whip this out. Go ahead. Make my day. Here are your hosts, Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Welcome to Everything Old is New Again, and uh, this is Douglas Viviani. Even the casual listener to Everything Old is New Again knows that on just about every broadcast, we sneak a Star Trek reference into the show. This week, I'm without my co-host, David Cohen, but in his place, I've garnered the guest of a legendary, legendary proportions for me uh, from the world of Star Trek in the second year of the original broadcast of Star Trek in 67. The producers introduced a new character into the program and brought levity, uh, accurate navigation through the stars, and even... uh, some pain and suffering from time to time. Uh, the then ensign Chekhov, uh, by way of the fine actor and our guest today, Walter Koenig, uh, was brought into our living rooms. And believe it or not, no matter how hard we try, through the power of reruns and on-demand TV, he's he's not left. Uh, besides portraying uh, Pavel Chekhov through the years from ensign to admiral now, Walter Koenig has appeared in numerous television shows, written books, written uh, television episodes, written for the stage and directed, uh, been in a number of movies outside of Star Trek, including Moontrap, we'll talk about that and from 1989 with uh, Bruce Campbell, and of course appeared as a guest uh, star, and a recurring guest star, kind of a villain there, uh, in Babylon 5 uh, for approximately, I think it was 12 episodes, Alfred Bester, welcome Walter Koenig. Thank you, thank you very much, Doug. Now because of that introduction, we only have about three minutes left, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to give you your due. You know, you you earned it. You certainly uh, are in our house household uh, all the time. We we love us over uh, Star Trek over here and Babylon Five and all that you do and the conventions. We'll get into all of that today. Um, uh, and I want to talk about uh, Star Trek uh, and and other things besides Star Trek. But I want to dive into that just to begin with here. And when you first got the uh, the beginning, the just start at the beginning here at, at Star Trek uh, uh, the second season when you you came on board did they uh inform you in any way shape or form that uh, and even was the rumor true that that they were looking for someone to kind of bring along a younger viewer maybe a beatles or a monkeys fan and uh and, and did they give you any kind of indication that um that you were to fill those large shoes you know i i it's it's, it's so long ago bear in mind <laughs> we're talking 52 years yes. ago uh, it's it's hard to remember. Certainly, that was accurate, as opposed to the the PR that NBC put out that the Kremlin was was upset because they didn't have a Russian astronaut uh, aboard the Enterprise. That was hogwash. Uh, it was, in fact, a very pragmatic uh, decision to bring somebody that they felt uh, would fulfill the demographic of the very young pre-adolescent and. Um, so there it was. Uh, that's, I don't know when I learned that, but I think fairly, fairly soon into the, uh, 
and today productions. Well, at, at some point, you gave point they uh, had you on stage right off the bat with the Beatles haircut. Uh, if you really look back at it, so I guess um, uh, they had whether they told you or not. It seems like everybody was jumping on board with the uh, the Beatles or the Monkees at that time in the late '60s or mid to late '60s. So um, and, and and listen, what difference it make? The point was that uh, when you came on board to me, uh, it added a little bit more of an element than that visiting navigator that would probably get into trouble or probably have some problem that ended his stay on the show. You certainly had trouble as a character, but you stayed on the show and brought some levity and and some fun to the show as well. So, um, I don't know, during those two years, I know there was uh, some growing pains and that you you wanted a little bit more meat to the part. I understand that. But in retrospect, as you go back, um, was it a rewarding experience as you look just at those first two years of this this show? It was rewarding. I got paid uh, every every time I worked. (laughs) That was rewarding. Uh, It was the first time that I'd had a fairly uh, constant uh, paycheck. Um, The first year was was so novel and so uh, and so different from anything that I experienced, having a relatively steady job that I just enjoyed going to work. Um, You know, like everything else. You know, you require some stimulation as you go along, and when the role didn't expand particularly, um, I became a little restless. Uh, in fact, I left the series um, for a month in in, the, in my second season, the third third year of the show, to do a play in Chicago, opposite Jackie Coogan, and uh, you know the the actor who played opposite Charlie Chaplin when uh, he was like a, a child. And that was great fun, and I and I never regretted the fact that I took that month off uh, to to have that experience. So uh, I'm restless. I'm I have an ego. I I I felt I could do more than you know. I I kept in and the warp factor two kept in, and uh, uh, so I uh, I having um, been invited to to do the play, I was uh, I was. Um, anxious to go forward with that so yeah i've complained over the years uh and probably a lot of people resented it particularly actors who can't get any work but that's you know that's that's me i was i mean i was a um, i was a, uh, a a good soldier i didn't complain i didn't throw tantrums um but i i certainly felt uh, uh, a certain um something was missing in, in that opportunity, and it, which was accentuated and underscored by the fact that we'd go to make personal and personal appearances, and people were so so uh, positive, and there was so much approbation and and uh, reinforcement, and for doing so little, so it, it sort of accentuated the whole sense of uh, I, I have this opportunity, but it's not really uh, the opportunity that I might have. Had the uh, the writers um, been instructed to write uh, uh, more rewarding material for the character? Bear in mind, I'm not the only actor who was in that position. George Takei, uh, Michelle Nichols, uh, uh, also felt a little um, frustrated by the by on the one hand all of the accreditation uh, that we received, and on the other hand on the uh, on the lack of uh, substantial 
uh, things to do on the show. Which is totally understandable, but uh, from a fan's point of view, certainly uh, you, you did add quite a bit to the show. But I think what you're saying is a precursor to when they did Next Generation. They basically took what you're saying and expanded that. Those seven characters that were on uh, this, the, this Enterprise or... Yeah, I guess you'd say the Enterprise for that show uh, had the opportunity. They all had individual. If you look at it, they had individual shows focused on them. Um, you know, they passed the baton a little bit. Certainly, there were stars that uh, that were in every show and, and lots of the scenes. But they did share it, and you did explore the backstories of almost all those characters. And I think you were a precursor, kind of to that, inadvertently or, or on purpose, whatever it might be, with these producers to say, you know what, these other characters have other things to do. And um, I don't know if you agree with that or not, but that. that it seemed to have happened for the next generation that what you were looking for. Well, you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, some of it has to do with the, the times. We had more, back in the 60s, there was more of a caste system regarding uh, television series and the, and the regular uh, players uh, on those shows. Um, it was just uh, standard practice that you'd have you know, the uh, most significant principles um, being uh, focused on and those uh, subordinates, those secondary characters being more in the background. And it showed up in the credits. Uh, the credits uh, in those days, the real stars of the shows were received their credits at, at, at the top of the show and the uh, secondary characters received theirs at the back. In fact, we received ours in between the guest stars. So it, it wasn't a great deal of acknowledgement to those performers. But hey, you know, as I said, um, I was just grateful for the opportunity to have a, uh, uh, a, a job uh, most weeks. And um, I felt very thankful for that. Um, but, you know, you get restless. You're an actor. You, Absolutely. You're, in this, you're in this job because either you have a very strong ego or because you have a you have a weak ego, and a weak ego demands um, uh, validation, and uh, and validation comes in in terms of the uh, the work that you do, and the success you have doing it, and the uh, the uh, the praise of those watching it, and I I, I guess I suffered really from a, from a weak ego because. Um, uh, I, when I wasn't challenged as an actor, I felt uh, I really felt being a secondary that I was a secondary character, and it you know affected how my attitude about things. Well, you're a starring character on Everything Old Is New Again at this point. We'll uh, take that as a segue. Uh, we'll come back right after this on Everything Old Is New Again with Walter Koenig. You're listening to Everything Old is New Again, America's entertainment pop culture talk show with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. Excuse us. Oh, excuse me. Uh, we are looking for nuclear weapons. Can you tell me where the naval base is in Alameda? We're, we're looking for nuclear... Hello. We are looking for the nuclear vessels in Alameda. Could you tell me where... Can you, you help us? Please, we're looking for the naval base in Alameda. Could you tell me where the nuclear vessels are? No. Ooh, I don't know if I know the answer to that. I think it's across the bay, in Alameda. 
That's what I said, Alameda. Alameda. I know that. But where is Alameda? <laughs> Welcome to Everything Old is New again. You're back uh, talking and having some fun with uh, Walter Koenig. That's a clip from, if you don't know, uh, The Voyage Home. We were just piggybacking there a little bit upon our discussion last segment and talking about the comedic element of Chekhov. In The Voyage Home, I don't know, I heard and I think, just get the feel that The Voyage Home was one of your favorite uh, Star Trek projects or no? It was. It was my favorite project. You know, there was there was action that was specifically written for the character. A couple of scenes that uh, that were primarily my working with somebody other than the crew. They even wrote a uh, theme uh, music for Chekhov when he's running across the bridge. So uh, yeah, that was one of my favorite films. Well, I'll tell you, I was at a convention uh, years ago in Los Angeles um, when I lived there back in the in the day. Let's see, I'm just going to place this probably around 1988 and. And I had you uh, sign a script of uh, The Voyage Home, and I asked you to sign it, I'll be careful next time. And uh, you kind of looked at me and said, what the heck, what is that? I said, well, because, of course, Chekhov uh, had his problems running and falling and, and uh, getting into trouble in The Voyage Home. And, and I think that's what you were talking about also with the scenes where you were uh, on the Enterprise and interacting with other characters other than the crew. Is that what you're saying? no idea what I was talking uh, about. Well, you were saying how it was interesting and fun to work on uh, The Voyage Home in that you had the opportunity to work with other characters on the set. Uh, I should say on, this, on the uh, location. Yeah, well, that, well, that's true. I just don't know what the reference to I'll be careful next time. Oh, well, that's, of course you don't remember. I'm just saying that the, <laughs> that was my silly reference of I had asked you to sign my script oh. with that, and I certainly have that still to this day uh, on the table here as we speak. Uh, just, just a little piece of paraphernalia or, or collectible that I, uh, that I have that I enjoy. <laughs> anyway, it's a non sequitur. The, the point being is that uh, that movie, I thought, was, um, uh, was something that was maybe... Uh, one of the highlights and, and Leonard Nimoy directed that and had some point of view in writing it and then not to, to disparage anybody but you know the next movie didn't seem to, to do follow up on that too well and that just brings up an idea that I, I don't want to get to all that but I know there's some uh, difficulties you, you and many people have had with some of the characters on the on the show behind the scenes but you had the courage I think I would say in 2011 to go on Shatner's Raw Nerve and uh, approach this on the air and discuss with him some of the difficulties you had of him not necessarily remembering your name in certain instances and, and not being the, the troop leader that we had referenced previously that maybe Ricardo Montalban might have been. You had the courage to address that with him and he seemed to apologize and he seemed to be sincere about not really being sympathetic to and understanding your point of view back in the 60s but now kind of does. I don't, does that make any sense? Did, I get, did, did we summarize that uh, properly or, or how would you feel about the appearance on on the raw nerve. I was glad to finally have an, an opportunity to to tell him precisely what I thought. You know, we've we've all gotten up at conventions and hinted at the fact that he wasn't um, he wasn't one of the guys. He was certainly uh, one of the one of the folks. He was certainly on a, he held himself uh, differently and uh, didn't communicate. He communicated well with with Leonard and with the Forest during the series days, but he didn't really communicate with us. Yeah, so don't know. I, I was glad I did that. Uh, it ended up when we ended, and it was the proverbial uh, you know gesture where I put out my <laughs> it was sort of like putting out my hand to shake hands and. He turning his back and walking away. Huh. So uh, we, we we did ha- we did end on that on that note. So he did. You, you're saying he ended on the note of him walking away without shaking your hand at the end of that episode, at the end of the raw nerve. Yeah. So yeah. So uh. I think all, all that con- contrition 
that you saw and I don't know what happened, you know when I when I told him that he wasn't that he was the captain of our crew but he wasn't he wasn't the leader of of the cast. Right. So I don't know why. I, I I don't know why I did that. I mean, it's true. I did. I don't know, but I don't know why. Yeah. You know. Well, I, you know I, <laughs> yeah, so it's it's a shame because at that point it seemed it, I guess you know it's hard to tell when actors are even being interviewed, right? Because it seemed when a, somebody like myself was watching it, it seemed, and I have a trepidatious about it in a black cloud. Also thinking, mm, I don't know if he's really being that way, but it seemed to be very sincere. And then uh, I guess what we're saying is may not have been, which is a shame. Have you seen him at convention since? And anything like it doesn't seem to be something that is really a bothersome to you anymore at this point. It is what it is. What can I say? He he uh, he seems to be a, a gentleman that that's continuing to this day in his career, and that's number one, I guess. Yeah. So <laughs> leave it at that. Now let's talk about you. In with respect to you, did uh, some great work, I thought, in to serve all my days as Star Trek ne- New Voyages 2006 fan film, which took off on a previous episode of the original series where the characters got older and Chekhov didn't. In this case, Chekhov did get older. And that I think gave you a little bit of a meat there to the character. No? Absolutely. And I did it. I've been mean, sort of chasing. Uh, you know, a ghost I mean, uh, over the last 50 years trying to to get hold of this um, uh, transparent uh, less than solid character and, and make him uh, you know, a full flesh and blood entity um, which, you know, can be viewed as being somewhat pathetic God, he's still, he's still playing Chekhov after 50 years. Well, it's, you know, and I and I wonder about that myself. <clears throat> Except that my my sense has always been that, uh, and I mentioned this in I think the very first segment is that uh, I've always been a little embarrassed about the fact that uh, there was so much uh, acknowledgement and so much positive feedback from fans for for so little contribution on my part. Uh, not that I felt that I couldn't have done more, and plus, and precisely the opposite, that I could have, and I would have liked to been able to prove it, and uh, and and make this character, you know, substantial. And uh, so when this was a idea was brought to my attention, it was more f- for my own personal satisfaction that I said yes, because I thought, well, at last I can <clears throat> I can actually do something with Chekhov and bring him to life. And um, um, particularly when uh, the, the concept was explained to me about uh, taking off from the, the, the episode we did called Deadly Years, where everybody grew old except Chekhov, and now several years later, um, he suddenly starts to grow old. And you, and, you know, the character has to deal with that he's going to die and then going through all those all those stages. And then, know, and then he eventually, not, not to ruin it, but he does die in that one, right? But uh, in Requiem, now again, the Requiem is the newest uh, incarnation, and in there, it's my understanding that you're basically retiring the character of Chekhov at this point, no? Well, I'm retiring my playing the Chekhov right. character. Um, it's enough. It's right. enough. Right? <laughs> I mean, Edwin Booth, uh, John Wilkes Booth's brother, was a Shakespearean actor who played the same role for like 30 years, King Lear, 
it's a, certainly it's a, it's a more challenging role than Chekhov. <clears throat> but you know, I wonder about a man playing the same role for so many years, and then I say, well, Jesus, I did it. And um, and as I said, this said, it, it might sound a, a little desperate. You know that I can't do, uh, I can't uh, have any, uh, I don't get any other opportunity, and so I keep doing this thing over and over again. But the, my intention always was was to, to fill it out, to make it three dimensional, and I think uh, to, to serve. What was it called? To serve all my years. Yes. Uh, I, oops, I, I'll get it for a second. I had it to, ser- to serve all my days. To serve all my days. You know, I thought with that. Um, that would be that would be the episode, regardless of how few people saw it, um, that would for me help satisfy that need I had <clears throat> to make him, you know, a real uh, life person. Um, and then you know, and and, and great that you know I, I I was satisfied with that. Um, but then when this was brought to me, brought to my uh, attention, this possibility with. With um, the Renegades, I thought, well, you know, uh, my, you know what? I, mean, you know, I was thinking, I was thinking, I, I was, you know, as I, as I, as I've intimated, um, my relationship with Mr. Shatner wasn't terrific, but I had total respect and um, for the character of Captain Kirk. And I thought <clears throat> that it achieved almost mythological proportions. Right. Uh, he, you know, he was known the world over, and he an extraordinary following. And his demise should be something quite theatrical and, and you know, significant and important. And I thought they treated him uh, very badly. In the next generation's film, right. it was almost incidental, and I really felt it was more than incidental. It was insulting, and my senses, having learned a little bit about uh, the person in charge of that production, that that was probably um, something that was done purposely. Right. Uh, so, um, so when I, when I was approached about doing another Chekhov film in Renegades. And then the Chekhov the portrayal in Renegades, I said, it, you know, with the um, understanding that it would that it, the that he would die, and that it would be a very theatrical and uh, uh, significant death. I, I wanted I wanted Chekhov to have what the what I felt was, Kirk was deserving and did not have. Very interesting, and you also a, a die an admiral, so we we <laughs> admire that. And, and, and honestly, that that's that's a great work. I'm looking forward to looking uh, at Ren, uh, Renegades: The Requiem. Look that up on Amazon.com. I should say on Google uh, that, and you'll see that I believe all over YouTube and and their own website. You can check that out. So uh, they'll go out on this on everything old is new again. A little uh, clip from Moon Trap. We'll be back in a few minutes with uh, uh, Walter Koenig. Uh, continue.
Now, back to America's Entertainment Pop Culture Talk Show. Everything old is new again with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. Hey, it's Dr. Peter Weller. I'm here with my friends David Cohen and Douglas Viviani on Everything Old is New Again. One of my favorite shows. And I may, I may not be the most interesting man in the world, but I'm one of them. Uh, and we're back with another gentleman that is one of the most interesting men in the world as far as Everything Old is New Again is concerned, and that is Walter Koenig. That's, of course, Peter Weller, who appeared in Star Trek uh, the Enterprise uh, show a number of times into the new movie Into Darkness. I've seen uh, many conventions since like 1973 in New York City, believe it or not, and I was a little kid. I've seen and talked to you many times and signed autographs. You've taken photographs and you've always been gracious with your time, but uh, these conventions have to in some way, at least the traveling part of it, got to be exhausting uh, to you, uh, but you're gracious enough to, to be at most of them, so there's uh, an attraction uh, to uh, everyone is calling you and wanting to be, be at these conventions, but to get the, the yes must be thrilling to them. And, and the idea is, uh, uh, what is your, your thought with respect to conventions at this point? Well, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I've been doing it for a long time. Right. <laughs> and uh, I love being there. I love being at conventions. I love the interchange, uh, the interaction with uh, the fans. Uh, I like seeing uh, actors that I haven't seen in, in years. And the, you know, I'm always treated well by the the hosts, the people who put them on, it's the traveling there that gets to me. Um, you know, if everything was done in California or Nevada, I probably would have uh, less qualifications about taking those trips, but as a, I'm generally flying across the country, and it's five, six hours, or I'm going to New Zealand or Australia, the UK or Germany or Brazil, and that does take something out of me. So I'm sort of, I'm sort of cutting down. I'm not uh, totally rejecting invitations, but uh, I'm trying to cut down a little bit at my age. And you've been uh, at so many, uh, and you're it's interesting, and as you are on the show here on stage, fielding questions, and certainly the fans uh, will all agree are, are rabid and, and, and great for this show. Um, but there's got to be, I mean, I've seen, let's just back up, when you're on stage at the convention, you do take questions, everyone does, and I've seen actors, while they're on stage, as someone's proposing to their girlfriend uh, while you're on stage <laughs> there, and, and I've actually seen a girl say no to that, so that was embarrassing. And, uh, you know, people bring their dogs and their kids up and want Want the stars to like bless them, or a man used to come up with chocolate, these gourmet chocolates all the time, and offer them to the celebrity. So there are some odd things that happen, which are memorable, and that's cool. But you know, uh, I got to anticipate that there must be some odd questions or experiences you've had at a convention. Not to disparage the uh, the, the the person, but let's have some fun with some of these uh, conventioneers and and the silly things they've done with you, if you have any in, uh, in mind. Well, I'm sure there have been over the course of the years. I've had one woman uh, rather sophisticated and holding herself in an almost haughty manner. Uh, look at the 20 pictures uh, of me that I have set out <laughs> to autograph and, and go back and forth uh, from one end of the table to the other. Uh, uh, deep in thought and finally look up at me and say, which one of these is you? <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that lovely? <laughs> Thanks for coming. <laughs> How about I think there was a time, I don't know, you were mistaken for a bellhop during one of the appearances? When oh, you were in your... yeah, that, was, that was hysterical. Uh, Jimmy Dewan and I, um, it was during the day of um, 
before DVDs, uh, when they had VCR, the uh, is that right? Am I getting that right? Yes. Yes, and and everybody was opening up a mom and pop store somewhere, and we were invited to make an appearance uh, at a mom and pop store that was just opening, and uh, and they flew us in first class and they put us up in this very it was in Charlotte, North Carolina, they put us in this very exclusive hotel, and but the but the uh, the qualification was the proviso was that we had to make an appearance in our uniforms. And I had never done that. Um, I thought that was sort of like, I don't know, the monkey in the, uh, in, in the, in, in the suit. Right. And, uh, and I found that I thought it was a, a bit beneath my dignity until they told me how much they were going to pay me. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, oh, okay. So uh, it was the only time I've ever done it. And so Jimmy doing in his uniform and Walter Koenig and his are waiting for this, you know, stretch limo with the, the jacuzzi in in the back seat and uh, and the drinks and everything else on the ping pong table to to show up. And a woman who just checked in came over to us and said, "Y'all take my bags to the room now." <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I don't. I can only imagine the reaction at that point <laughs> to you. I thought it. I thought it was hysterical. Jimmy couldn't understand what was going on. <laughs> but um, yeah, I thought that was very very funny. But she, yeah, she thought we were bellhops, which she shows that not not the whole world is interested in this. Right. Day. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And yeah, you, you got to kind of go through it with a, with a smile on your face too. I mean, I, you know, uh, and, and you do that at these conventions. You, you know, the conventions are great fun and so forth. But and, and be nothing without you being there, of course. But uh, you know, it's just you know, being invited up to uh, sacrifice a chicken in someone's room is not exactly something you. <laughs> That's right. That's, yeah, yeah. That was uh, <laughs> you heard that story. Yeah. yeah, a young lady came up to me and very strange, quite attractive but very strange, and uh, she said she was into. Black magic, and uh, and uh, during the and I found her in, in conversation fascinating. Um, because it was so out of left field, and and nothing that I'd actually heard a real human being talk about right. before. And and then she uh, she ended with a uh, an invitation to come to her room and sacrifice a chicken, <laughs> um, which I demurred. <laughs> Gracefully, I'm sure you <laughs> sneak away as much as you can. Now, those stories can be found and and more in Warped Factors: uh, Neurotics Guide to the Universe, a, a book that you wrote that uh, that I found to be uh, quite interesting and different from the other autobiographies that, that people have written. And and you, you give some great stories behind the scenes, also about uh, you know about producers and directors and and uh, jealous managers and so forth. And besides that, there's also Chekhov's Enterprise, which you sort of a, as a diary when through how the uh, experience was making uh, Star Trek the motion picture which uh, unfortunately didn't come out to be uh, the great picture that we all desired but uh, it, it was at least the first step in getting the series uh, onto the movie theater itself but um, <laughs> you have uh, had some experience writing these books did you get a good reaction from from these what did you think of the reaction from setting these books out oh, it was good I got a, a I got good Critical reaction and good popular reaction. Yeah, you can definitely... So 
I was going to say, you can definitely look those up and still get them on, uh, on Amazon I've, I've, if you haven't already. By the way, the story about the, about wearing the uniform and so forth reminds me of uh, Galaxy Quest. You ever see that, that movie, which is sort of a parody of the Star Trek convention situation? Oh, I, I loved it. There you go. I loved it. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. I'm sure you can relate to a lot, a lot of that. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. all right, we'll be back with Walter Koenig for our final moments, uh, final segment, and uh, on everything old is new again, having some uh, some fun with uh, Walter Koenig talking Star Trek and all things Koenig. We'll be back. This is Everything Old is New Again, America's entertainment pop culture talk show with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. The council refuses to act. He is destroying planets, and yet they do nothing. We can't trust anyone. Our salvation may rest with rogues and outcasts. There we go. That's a little piece of uh, Renegades, the Requiem, which you've got to check out. It's the uh, last appearance you'll see of Walter Koenig acting as Chekhov and uh, a fitting end, for what I understand, to the character. So uh, check that out. Look at, uh, I guess you go Google Renegades, the Requiem. You'll find that and enjoy. Um, we're here on Everything Old is New Again, and we're having some fun with Walter Koenig uh, talking about um, all things Koenig, let's say. And uh, one thing we haven't talked about is personal collections. Now, I have a collection of lunchboxes from the 60s and 70s that I acquired when I... Uh, I guess I was in my 30s before I got married uh, because – and I think the motivation was that my mom never got me these that I always kind of attracted my attention when I was a kid. So I'm a little bit of a payback or uh, to myself for a, a job well done, let's say. I have a curio with 60s and 70s lunchboxes. I also have a large collection of antique radios from the 30s to the 50s and, uh, and of course, that's – Founded in my interest in history and the and the love of radio, I know, uh, Mr. Kenny, that you collect the uh, big little books and pins and Chekhov collectibles. Uh, is, is does that ring a bell as to the reason why would I why I did those two collections? Is there is that is similar to what you're thinking when you're involved in collecting? Well, I you know I've I've examined that over the years because I have been pretty much of an obsessive. Co- collector of comic character related uh, items. As a kid I collected comic character pinback buttons and bubblegum cards and big little books which were kind of precursors of comic books. They were short uh, cardboard cover three by four inch books that had text on one side and comic art on the other. and I think that all had to do with the fact that if I had had more friends, I probably wouldn't have been such a such a devoted collector to this stuff, which never uh, you know said a nasty word to me or made me feel uncomfortable. And um, and then somehow and then and then when the opportunity arose, and then it was all thrown out by my mother. You know, we lived nice. in an apartment house, and when I went off to college. It all went down the, uh, it went into the furnace. So, um, uh, I forgot about it. And then 1967, I had already been married a couple of years. My wife bought me a, one of these big little books and it started it all again. And, uh, it's gotten, it got, it got to the place where, um, 
we literally built a second floor on our house so that <laughs> I could display I could display all of this. I must say now, as I've turned my eighth decade, uh, my interest, although has not having expired, but certainly has has waned a little bit, and. Um, I'm, I have it under control. I won't pay above a certain amount. <laughs> well, it sounds to me, though, that especially with the pins, I think you've gotten every pin there is, right? So at some point it has to wane. <laughs> There's nothing else to, to buy. I mean, you've, you've, you've done such a great job collecting all these things. Yeah, yeah, that's true. There's, there's not too much, you know, I mean, there's lots of stuff that, you know, is available at auction either through, you know, Hakes uh, Americana or through uh, other uh, paper auctions or on the internet but you know now collectibles are from the 70s and 80s and 90s and my god that's yesterday you know as far as I'm concerned right uh, my stuff is all from the uh, I have some comic strip character stuff from the turn of the 20th century from 1905 and uh, through the 20s and 30s. Now, does that coincide with an interest in the history of, let's say, I don't know, the big little book characters or, uh, I don't know, the, 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 the different uh, things that you collect? Is there, is there an historical element to it, or is it just a, a need to have all of a particular type of collectible? I don't know. These are, these are you know, Andy Gump and Mutton Jeff and right. Gasoline, <laughs> And Moon Mullins. These were the comics and the comic strips that I read as a kid. There you go. They were in the newspaper, and you know. And I guess I was. I've been uh, trying to uh, reestablish that collection uh, because they were good memories. They were they were warm memories, and and uh, you know why do people collect? You know, I I think there are myriad reasons, and but certainly some of them have to do with emotional connection. I agree 100%. That's why I, when I collect... Um, I mean, listen, I go to the convention, Star Trek. I don't consider that my collection. I get an autograph or a picture or whatever it might be uh, for the experience of interacting with, with you or someone for, I don't know, the 15 seconds and, and have a story with a buddy to just say, you know, what happened or whatever. Um, that That's fine. But the radios that I collect and the lunch boxes, it, it gives you a visceral, uh, I don't know, kind of pat on the back that you, you've uh, achieved uh, uh, finding this and and, and to touch, to me, the radio, or to you maybe, the little book that, that someone read and owned back in, uh, back in the day, and that you have it now. It's just something, uh, I don't know what that is. There's something about that that gives you a sense of satisfaction that you're owning a piece of a smidge of history that you're, you're proud of, if that makes sense. Sure. Okay. Now, any of these big little books that you read anymore? <laughs> you ever pick any of them up, or are they all in the sh- on the shelf? Well, I did feel compelled to read at least some of them. And so, you know, I have <clears throat> somewhere in the area of five or six hundred. Wow. And I've probably read about a quarter of them, a quarter of the, of the books. How about that? Because you're on the air with Everything Old is New again for too much time. Otherwise, you could have spent this time reading a few of them, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you're doing bigger and better things, so that's okay. Speaking of which, uh, I want to congratulate you on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Uh, Well-deserved. Uh, you received that recently. Where is it? I know, you know, it's, of course, it's in Hollywood and right by that, the theater there. But can we define where it is to find it? I'm not really sure. Um, I know if, if you know where George Takei's star is and Gene Roddenberry's, mine is uh, pretty close to theirs. Okay. So, um, 
but I, I don't know the street. I, I, I've seen it once or twice. It was not in great uh, repair. Uh, and I felt like I should come out there with a bucket and a mop and clean it up a little bit. Right. Well, that particular area is not the... It, it, for no people that don't live there, I live there a little bit. When I was there in the late 80s, it wasn't the, the greatest, cleanest area of Los Angeles, let's say. Um, right. So that mm. might happen here and there. But just to have that is... I mean, that's, that's extraordinary. and that, That's got to be a, a plaque that you've got on the wall somewhere and, and something to pat yourself on the back with. And, and again, congratulations for that. Final question. Uh, we here on Everything Old is New Again. We, we like to expose and, and talk about uh, the past and the, the present uh, uh, of entertainment. Now, certainly there's a new Star Trek series coming out uh, called uh, Star Trek Discovery. And I don't know uh, where we are with that. I don't... It hasn't been released yet, uh, but do you have any, since you've, you've like the precursor to all of this and the foundation to the entertainment in, in the Star Trek world we're watching today, or at least a piece of the foundation, do you have any thoughts with respect to the new uh, or a new show that's now going to be released in September? Well, I, I, um, I don't think about it very much. Uh, in my case, old is old. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I... I I try not to live in the past. <clears throat> when you get to my age, you start thinking about the, the neat things that happened to you or the bad things that happened to you when you were much younger. But I, I try to keep that at a, at a minimum. Uh, and then just look to, to today and 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 then and, and, and tomorrow uh, to keep moving forward. Right. Uh, and uh, so it, it, it's not a preoccupying uh, entity in my life. I I wish them well. I hope they do it. I hope they do it well. I have no idea. I've heard rumors back and forth, but I have no concrete evidence as to how uh, successful they are being. I believe it's going to come out um, I, uh, sometime this year, either either July or September, or I think July, maybe this month. Uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure. Okay. But uh, I wish them well, and... Uh, and that's about it as far as that goes. And we feel the exact same about you. Uh, not not the old reference, but wishing you well. Uh, and we wish you very well. Very much. Very. I just say this: we've had a very fun experience with you. We've had uh, brought things to life uh, that I don't think that people hear on the radio all that much. And it's been a tremendous experience spending time with you. Someone that I've admired since uh, since you've been on the air. I was born in '62, so you've been in my life. My entire life and i wanted to just thank you for taking the time and we had so much fun thank you so much thank you douglas it's, it's great to, to to spend time on everything old is new again with the uh uh the likes of walter koenig well come on back next week we'll continue with more discussion of everything old is new again in pop culture uh as we see it here's the theme what we think is the theme of the star trek discovery the new series on the way out everything old is new again no that's not a great recording